Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, July 25th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Israel's parliament passes a key judicial overhaul. The UN holds talks with North Korea over a detained U.S. private. Elon Musk begins rebranding Twitter as X. Spain faces a hung parliament. OpenAI's Sam Altman launches a new crypto project. China unveils steps to boost private investment. Prime Minister Hun Sen claims victory in Cambodia's general election. Corfu becomes the latest Greek island to evacuate over wildfires. Bangladesh grapples with a dengue epidemic. And a gymnasium roof collapse kills 11 in China. In our top story, Israel's parliament passes the first judicial overhaul. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, ABC News, Reuters, CNN, and Euronews. Israel's parliament, the Knesset, passed a key bill on Monday that's the first part of the government's judicial reform plan that has stirred massive protests and controversy throughout the country. With the opposition boycotting the final vote, the first bill of the series of reforms passed 64 to 0. Monday's vote strips the Israeli court system of its power to strike down government decisions it deems unreasonable. Critics say the bill is undemocratic and seeks to erode Israel's balance of power, while proponents say the government is looking to rein in an overzealous judiciary. The Knesset's vote came as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the architect of the reforms, was released from the hospital after a sudden health scare prompted doctors to implant a pacemaker in him. Netanyahu suffers from a condition that can cause irregular heartbeats. Vocal displays of opposition have followed the reform plan with opposing members of parliament shouting, quote, for shame, during the vote while droves of protesters continued their demonstrations, with some chaining themselves to posts and blocking roads. For six months, Netanyahu's ruling coalition has looked to implement the judicial reforms that will mark the largest shakeup to Israel's judiciary since its 1948 founding. The country has no written constitution and a powerful Supreme Court that has used its authority to nix several government bills. Israeli President Isaac Herzog was reportedly negotiating a compromise with the opposition before Monday's approval of the controversial bill. U.S. President Biden warned against Netanyahu's government pushing through the bill. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts, and this left narrative spin comes from the Middle East Monitor. Netanyahu and his far-right government are holding Israel hostage as they look to transform the country's judiciary and strip it of its power. Israel claims to be a democracy, but everything that's transpired in recent months suggests it's the furthest thing from a democracy. Israel is slipping further and further into a fascist dictatorship as the far right looks to solidify its power without the intention of ever letting it go. The Times of Israel provide the right narrative for this story. While the opposition may claim to have popular support in opposing the government's judicial reforms, they don't realize that they are in the minority for a reason. Most Israelis stand with Netanyahu and his pro-Israel party, and they don't want to politicize Supreme Court to overstep its bounds and interfere with the legitimate legislation. A real democracy allows the people to support the politicians and policies that they want, even if those politicians happen to be on the right. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there is a 1% chance that a civil war will break out in Israel before the year 2024. 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. The U.N. is talking with North Korea about a detained U.S. private. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS News, The Wall Street Journal, Fox News and Reuters. On Monday, General Andrew Harrison, deputy commander of the U.N. command, said the U.N. has made contact with North Korea to secure the return of U.S. soldier Travis King. Harrison said the talks began under a process established by the Korean War armistice. However, Harrison would not go into details about when talks started, how much contact has been made, or what the U.S. knows about King's condition. King, a 23-year-old Army private, has been held in North Korea since last Tuesday when he crossed the border while on a tour of the Joint Security Area, which is part of the demilitarized zone separating the two Koreas. Previously, King had been held by the U.S. Army at a facility in South Korea for 47 days while waiting to be flown to Texas for disciplinary actions and a possible discharge over two alleged assaults. North Korean state media has so far remained silent on this incident. Thank you, Scott. As expected, opposing viewpoints, we've got a right narrative coming from Breitbart to start it off. It says President Biden is so weak on North Korea policy that the communist country doesn't even bother to answer calls from the Secretary of State, whether it's about King or talks over the country's nuclear program. In fact, North Korea's response to the U.S. has been to just test more missiles. Biden's woke and ineffective policies have made the U.S. less safe, and King is now in peril because of the lack of respect North Korea has for the U.S. And NBC News has the left narrative spin. The U.S. doesn't have embassy relations with North Korea because it rightfully doesn't want to legitimize an oppressive regime that has threatened nuclear action against the U.S. and beyond. Under the circumstances, the Biden administration is doing everything it can to bring King home, because that's what the U.N. command was set up to do. North Korea is launching missiles because it's scared, not because it's lost respect for the U.S. Elon Musk making headlines again as he begins rebranding Twitter as X. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Associated Press, Reuters, Financial Times and CNN. Elon Musk has announced that social media platform Twitter will be rebranded to X, with CEO Linda Yaccarino describing the move as a step towards creating a global town square. Musk revealed as part of a series of tweets on Sunday that the changes would begin as early as Monday. Musk stated that the platform would soon, quote, bid adieu to the Twitter brand and gradually all the birds. The company's new logo has been unveiled as a white X on a black background. In 2017, Musk bought the domain X.com from PayPal, which he had co-founded in 1999, and stated upon his acquisition of Twitter his desire to create an everything app called X within three to five years. While Twitter's website address and name within the Google and App Stores currently remain the same, the company's name has officially been changed to XCorp in legal filings. Founded in 2006, Twitter has used its logo for over a decade. Yaccarino described the rebranding as a, quote, second chance to make another big impression, following the platform's 50% reduction in advertising and negative cash flow during Musk's tenure as owner. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have a Narrative A from Sydney Morning Herald. Musk's consistently erratic decision-making since becoming Twitter's owner continues to have long-lasting and damaging consequences for the platform's reputation. While the plan for X has been lurking in the shadows for some time, it's clear that Musk wishes to strip the company of its very core and transform the platform into a completely different entity. Whether X is successful or not, we are witnessing the slow death of Twitter in front of our very eyes. 
Global Village Space provides Narrative B. Musk's decision to rebrand Twitter has been met with excitement and skepticism. The change is undoubtedly bold and is one of the most significant decisions that has been made since the company's acquisition. And, like all things Musk, only time will tell the true impact of this vision-oriented change on the platform's future. And we've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict there's a 95% chance that Elon Musk will remain the owner of Twitter on January 1st, 2024. The results are in at the Spanish election. The right-wing blocs win, but fall short of a majority. The facts on this story are agreed upon by El País, BBC News, Reuters, CNN, Politico, and The Telegraph. Spain's right-wing political bloc, comprised of the Popular Party, or PP, and Vox, has become the largest in the Congress of Deputies, but failed to pass the 176 majority threshold as the ruling Socialist Party, or PSOE, fared better than expected in Sunday's vote with the ballot count nearly completed a hung parliament lubes in Spain. Provisional results show the PP and Vox hold 136 and 33 seats, respectively, while the PSOE garnered 122 and another left-wing party named Sumar obtained 31. Intra-party negotiations and meetings involving King Philippe VI of Spain will outline the path forward for the European country in the coming weeks, as coalition-building prospects remain uncertain. The PP will have the opportunity to form a coalition government first, but a second Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez-led minority government could emerge. If the deadlock persists, fresh elections will have to be called. Despite coinciding with the summer holidays of many Spaniards, voter turnout was four points higher than in 2019 at 70.4%. Prime Minister Sanchez surprisingly called this snap election in May after the left suffered a heavy defeat in local elections. Traffic on the roads leading into the country's major cities was significant on polling day, suggesting many voters waited until the last minute to return from holiday destinations and cast their votes. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. The Guardian gives us our first spin. It is a left narrative. Spaniards have sent a resounding message to neo-fascist groups at home and across the continent by denying Vox's xenophobic members and their conservative allies of the popular party a majority in parliament. Though this battle is won, the war isn't over, and it will take all of the centrists and progressives to fight this threatening trend and promote social and economic policies to improve living standards. And the European conservative brings us the right narrative spin. Whether deliberately or honestly, the mainstream English language media has misrepresented nationalist movements whose popularity is on the rise across Europe by depicting them as evil fascists assaulting minorities. In fact, they are center-right by U.S. standards. All the parties in this Spanish bloc are doing is advocating common sense and cultural self-defense in a world being shaken up by globalism. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative as well for this story. They say there's a 28% chance that Spain will recognize Catalonia by the year 2070. I will be 97 years old if that happens. If you do, if you make it that long, which uh, l- let's let's make a pact to visit Catalonia together. Okay, let's do it. You'll be pushing me around in a wheelchair probably. Uh, probably someone else will be pushing around in a wheelchair. <laughs> we'll get a uh, we'll get a one of those du- dual strollers. There you, know, you-, that, you know, that you put two babies in, we'll get a double one. Yeah. <laughs> In our next story, the OpenAI CEO launches the WorldCoin Crypto Project. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, TechCrunch, and Ars Technica. WorldCoin, a cryptocurrency project founded by OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, launched Monday in 35 cities and 20 countries, 
Its main feature is World ID, a so-called digital passport created by scanning a person's eye to create a unique ID that differentiates between human and artificial intelligence bots. The crypto startup aims to put a crypto wallet and some of its WLD coin, a cryptocurrency token, onto everyone's phone. But to do that, it needs to verify people's identities. Currently, it's giving 25 coins to each participant and plans to cap the supply at 10 billion coins over the first 15 years. The launch will not include the U.S. as regulators are cracking down on digital assets based on fears over cryptocurrencies being used as a vehicle for speculation and fraud. However, Altman said, the U.S. does not make or break a project like this as it only makes up 5% of the global population. On the world's largest crypto exchange, Binance, WLD jumped from a starting price of $0.15 cents to a peak of $5.29 during early morning trading on Monday. Altman says he hopes it will be a tool for implementing universal basic income, claiming it will be needed as AI replaces more human workers. WorldCoin, in a statement, wrote its technology could also increase economic opportunity, scale a reliable solution for distinguishing humans for AI online, and enable global democratic processes. Though it's faced regulatory pushback, investors such as venture capital groups Andreessen Horowitz and Kosla Ventures, internet entrepreneur Reid Hoffman, and prior to the collapse of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, poured $250 million into the project. WorldCoin also plans to hold on to 20% of its currency to fund development. All right, thanks, Eric. Be in crypto brings us the establishment critical narrative. WorldCoin isn't a crypto scheme. It's a potential dystopian nightmare. Companies have proven time and again that they're incapable of protecting customer-sensitive data, which is why this project must be held under the highest level of public scrutiny. People have already given up facial, retinal, and fingerprint scans. And with DNA samples on the horizon, we must be careful of how far these companies want to take it. No one collects biometric data for nothing, so it's time to probe the potential nefarious motives for such projects. The pro-establishment narrative comes from Hacker Noon. While concerns of a dystopian WorldCoin future are understandable, the World ID technology actually has the safest potential of anything seen to date. Unlike other crypto schemes, the use of biometric data will ensure that only humans who sign up for the project will have access to it and rid the system of fake AI accounts. Though developers must work thoroughly on its safety mechanisms, we should be excited for the future of our economy and the human race more generally as this project rolls out. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. This time they predict there's a 50% chance that the total market cap of all cryptocurrencies will be at least $2,560,000,000 by the start of 2027. Uh, nope, this one gets a no from me, dog. I don't want anyone having any reason to cut out my eyeball to try to steal my Bitcoin or whatever. I'm good. <laughs> Have you seen Minority Report? Yikes. I don't know if you've seen the episode where that happens in Ozark, but it's pretty gruesome. Oh, luckily I didn't. I mean, that's... Uh, I'm yeah. Heaved out by that. Oh my oh gosh. My God. Yeah, it's pretty, I'd rather it's pretty be... gruesome. China reveals a plan to boost private investment. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Straits Times, Reuters, CNBC, CGTN, and China Daily. The Chinese government has announced an intent to attract more private capital for major infrastructure projects. The National Development and Reform Commission said on Monday that it will encourage investors in the transportation, water, energy, and agricultural sectors. The commission released a list on Monday of 2,900 local government projects worth 3.2 trillion won, that's 591 billion American dollars, that private investors can participate in. 
This step is intended to improve business sentiment and boost faltering economic growth. This announcement came after China last week pledged to improve the private sector, as Beijing is planning on its post-pandemic economic recovery guidelines to make the economy bigger, better, and stronger. In last week's pledge, the Chinese government and the Communist Party vowed to treat private companies just as they would state-owned enterprises. The agreement also included a promise to ensure equal treatment in terms of intellectual property, landholding, and labor. According to Commission Director Liu Guosan, the new measures include establishing a national key private investment project database, recommending those in the database to relevant financial institutions, and encouraging them to provide financing. The commission already conducted three meetings on July 3rd, 10th, and 17th with private companies across multiple sectors. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. The pro-China narrative comes from Global Times. Beijing has recognized the importance of private businesses in order for China to boost its economic recovery after two years of slow growth and COVID lockdowns. Private enterprises generate half of all tax revenue and over 60% of the GDP. This is a strong message from the commission. And the anti-China narrative comes from Bloomberg. The world's second largest economy has suffered from a confidence problem after two years of crackdowns and pandemic controls. Foreign investors want the same level of access that Chinese governments enjoy in Western markets. Private entrepreneurs in China are waiting for the government to provide more than just rhetoric regarding market access. For now, the PRC's private sector push is running into skepticism. The nerds of Metaculous Prediction community say there's a 50% chance that China will officially cease to be a socialist state by November of the year 2078. I will be 105 mm. then, Scott. Yeah, that's going to be a tough one. Hopefully, you know, uh, <laughs> if you you should, I don't care which side of the argument you're on, whether you want it to be a socialist state or not, you should be happy to cease to be a socialist state on that time if you're so lucky. Absolutely, tears yeah. should be in your eye. There will be tears. Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen claims victory in the general election. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NPR Online News, Washington Post, Reuters, CNN, and The Guardian. Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen's Cambodian People's Party, or CPP, has declared a landslide victory in Sunday's general election, which critics denounced as the most unfree and unfair the country has seen in decades. He posted on his Telegram channel unofficial results estimating the CPP secured 120 seats and the Royalist Funsenpec Party won five. The CPP believes the party captured 78 to 80 percent of the total vote. The U.S. and EU, among others, has refused to send election observers, citing concerns about the electoral process as the main opposition party, the Candlelight Party, was barred from contesting the election by the National Election Committee. After the poll, the U.S. announced a pause in some foreign assistance programs in Cambodia and imposed visa bans on individuals who allegedly undermine democracy. Hun Sen, who has been prime minister of Cambodia for 38 years, dismissed such claims by pointing out the record levels of turnout Sunday's vote saw, estimated to be 84% of the voting population or some 8.1 million people. It is expected that the longtime ruler will step down as prime minister in favor of his eldest son, the Western-educated Hun Manet, as early as next month. There is little indication that Hun Manet's style of governance would differ from his father. All right, Eric, Nam Pen Post brings us Narrative A. Turnout in the most recent Cambodian election was overwhelming, which is hardly a show of skepticism towards the Cambodian democratic process or the ruling government. Overseas opposition groups did everything in their power to disrupt the vote to no avail. 
Despite the absence of Western observers, NGOs and other governments observed the vote and gave their endorsement to the process in Cambodia, showing that the voice of the people will be heard. The Toronto Star gives us narrative B. This election was democratic in name only, as widespread harassment and the obstruction of opposition figures all but assured that Hun Sen would secure victory. Cambodia is the Southeast Asian country closest to China, and its neighbors have long voiced concerns of its increasingly flawed democracy. The vote was a carefully crafted sham, designed to give the Beijing-backed CPP a veneer of respectability. And disaster in Greece as thousands are evacuated from islands as wildfires grow. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, PBS NewsHour, The Daily Mirror, The Evening Standard, and DW. Over the weekend, Corfu became the second Greek island, along with Rhodes, to evacuate residents ahead of the explosive wildfires. The Greek Coast Guard has evacuated over 20,000 on both islands. The Corfu wildfire began on Sunday afternoon as the windy and dry conditions quickly spread the fire to nearby towns and villages. The advancing fire spurred the Emergency Communications Service to issue an evacuation warning for 18 areas of the island. Greece had planned for a national holiday to take place on Monday. However, Greece's president, Katerina Sekelaralopoulou, said, In view of the extraordinary conditions prevailing in the country due to the fires, the holiday has been canceled. The EU Commissioner for Humanitarian Aid and Crisis Management has said that the EU has provided over 450 firefighters and seven airplanes. Greece has experienced temperatures exceeding 40 degrees Celsius, or 104 degrees Fahrenheit, over the past week and the forecast calls for continued searing heat. The evacuation of holidaymakers has proved challenging for Greek agencies, with evacuations taking place by both land and sea, with some having to walk miles in the scorching heat to reach safety. Those are the facts, and our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Al Jazeera. The Greek government recognizes the seriousness of the threats that come with the changing climate. While hazards like wildfires have increased, So has the Greek government's response to the causes of challenging climate conditions. Greece has increased its electricity production through renewable means and will continue to increase its renewable footprint. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Reuters. In recent years, while battling monstrous wildfires, the Greek fire services have taken a beating and have lost the confidence of the Greek people. In 2021, homeowners were left to save their own homes, while fire services were sent to protect areas of Athens and other populated areas of the country. Athens must do more to prepare its government for the consequences of a changing climate and not just focus on emissions. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative. It says there's a 50% chance that the 2 degrees Celsius climate threshold will be crossed in the year 2049. Disturbing news coming from Bangladesh as the dengue epidemic kills over 170. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABP Live, BD Type, and Al Jazeera. At least 176 people have died of dengue fever in Bangladesh, with some health officials saying the disease has reached an epidemic status. However, the Bangladeshi government hasn't officially declared the outbreak as such. On July 16th, the Bangladesh Medical Association pushed authorities to declare the dengue outbreak a public wellness emergency, but the Directorate General of Health Services has said that the outbreak has not risen to the level of alarm needed for an epidemic. Officials say that the death rate is at a five-year high of 0.53% this year, compared to last year's record death rate of 0.45%, where 280 people died of dengue virus in Bangladesh. The excessively high death rate has been called alarming. 
Experts warn the outbreak may worsen in the near future as both dengue-related hospitalizations and deaths in Bangladesh usually peak in August and September. Dengue virus is common during the monsoon season in South Asia, which runs from June to September. The virus has no specific treatment, but with early detection and the appropriate medical treatment, less than 1% of cases are fatal. With more than 90% of dengue cases reported from urban areas, many Bangladeshis blame their local governments for not taking steps to stop the breeding of mosquitoes that cause the disease. Authorities, however, have rejected these claims, saying that they have been conducting dengue awareness campaigns since May and spraying repellents. ABP Live brings us Narrative A. The Bangladeshi government is not doing enough to stop the spread of the dengue virus. The death rate from the virus has gotten alarmingly high and the children of Bangladesh are at a heightened risk. The outbreak has reached an appropriate threat level to be considered an epidemic. Al Jazeera brings us Narrative B. While this recent outbreak of the dengue virus is horrible, it's not an epidemic just yet, per the Bangladeshi government. There are also multiple factors, from construction to climate change, to blame for this outbreak, despite the government's diligent mitigation measures. I'm looking forward to trying a new shirt I bought from L.L. Bean, and it supposedly has anti-mosquito something woven into it. Like, you can wash it, you can wear it, and it's not like a, a liquid in it. Something worked into the fabric that's supposed to repel mosquitoes, so you supposedly don't need bug spray. Let me know how that works. I need them to make one for, like, bill collectors. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they, yeah. Ironically, they have it, but the shirt's super expensive. So you're right back where you started. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. Tragedy in China as 11 are dead after a gymnasium roof collapse. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, the BBC, Guardian, and the New York Times. At least 11 are dead after a middle school gymnasium collapsed in China's northeastern city of Chichihar Sunday afternoon. According to the municipality's search and rescue headquarters, 19 people were in the gym during the collapse, with four escaping and 15 remaining trapped at the time. The gym was being used by a girls' volleyball team, with eyewitnesses telling the media that most of the victims were children. Parents have reportedly criticized the school for a lack of communication during the rescue effort, which lasted until Monday morning. One father complained that they told him his daughter is gone but that he couldn't identify her since all the children had their faces covered with mud and blood when they were sent to the hospital. He also claimed that police were sent to monitor the parents, but no one was sent to update them on their children. According to local media, the construction company working on an adjacent project left perlite, a form of volcanic glass, on the roof of the gym. Following days of heavy rainfall, the perlite soaked up the rain, the weight of which led to the roof caving in. While the head of the construction company has reportedly been detained, people on social media called for an investigation into how the roof was built. The school was supposed to be inspected as part of a regulation implemented after many schools collapsed ahead of the Beijing Olympics, though it's unknown whether the facility had been checked yet. As infrastructure incidents are not uncommon in China, this comes after a barbecue restaurant exploded last month, killing 31, and a coal mine collapsed, killing 53. President Xi Jinping has called on all regions to screen for and rectify all types of risks and hidden dangers. Thank you for laying out the facts of that story, Scott. The first spin is an anti-China narrative coming from Smart Cities Dive. China has a serious construction problem due to its architectural industry being in its infancy and contractors cutting regulatory corners. Unlike in U.S. or Europe, which have checks and balances between architects, general contractors, and material suppliers, these internal controls are currently lacking in the PRC. 
Between corruption and lack of technical preparation, buildings are often left vulnerable to tragedies like this one. And the pro-China narrative comes from the Global Times. While mistakes were made resulting in this tragic collapse, the PRC government takes its construction regulations seriously, with penalties of up to seven years in prison for violating safety measures. The company at fault was highly successful, securing 17 projects in the past three years, including 10 government projects. Those responsible have tarnished their reputation and will be charged through investigation and due process. These unintended consequences of uh, these constructions, that reminds me, I was reading an article recently about there's a building in, in, I think, London or somewhere in England that they built this fancy glass building and it's curved as like a design choice. And apparently that curve, when the sun hit it in a certain way, it melted a car that was parked out front. So much work goes into building the building, but then you don't take into account some environmental factors. So if that glass right. really melted the roof or whatever, I mean, yeah. that's crazy. Are you still building houses of cards? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I, I build one every day. Uh, I'm just, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still waiting. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, July 25th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to Join us next time on Improve the News.